This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Hey, today we're wrapping up our series that we called Theology of Sexuality. Some of you uh, wish this series would go on six more weeks. Others of you wish it had stopped six weeks ago, and so uh, um, but this will be our final week. And as we wrap it up, just want to just remind us, I'm going to talk a little bit at the end as we wrap up the series, but as we have been in this series, uh, we began talking just week number one about how really these issues are, are not even primarily uh, about sex, but, but, but are even much more connected to the, the issues regarding sex and sexuality are very connected to, to these deep issues in our life, ultimately issues of authority. Where is, who is the authority in our life? Where do we find this source of authority? Uh, issues of identity and meaning. Where do I find my sense of, of identity and who I am? And, and then ultimately we discovered that, that, that when it comes to issues of sex, and sexuality. None of us have batted a thousand. All of us find ourselves uh, in need of God's grace in the good news of Jesus. And so each week we have been uh, talking about, it seems like each week is, is, has been a, a little more sensitive for, 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 for some than the week before. And, and, and obviously all, all of these messages have, have uh, been sensitive uh, in meaningful ways, but, but uh, this week's uh, is no exception. And so uh, I'm going to invite Dr. Dusty Braun to the stage. Just welcome Dr. Braun. So Dusty and his wife Christy are our pastors of adult ministries. They oversee our adult discipleship, our life groups, and all those things. Dusty's also a psychologist in private practice. And so today we're going to have a conversation together uh, talking about how do we think through um, issues related to, to transgender folks and, and how do we think through this. And, and, and uh, obviously this is a, a hot button uh, issue in our culture and, and ultimately uh, we, we're not looking to add fuel to that fire. Ultimately, we want to be, how, how do we think as followers of Jesus about these issues? How do we love our neighbors well? And so, but, but we need to be thoughtful about uh, maybe growing in, in our understanding um, in, in different ways. And so, Dusty, thanks so much for, for joining me. Absolutely. And so, last service was, was great. And, uh, and so, if this one's not, it's, it's their fault, not our fault. And so... Uh, Hey, so uh, now Dusty has, uh, um, as a part of his PhD work, uh, was able to work closely with one of the, uh, the premier Christian experts on these issues and has, and has spent lots of time thinking deeply about these things. And so Dusty, thanks so much for, for joining me this morning. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, what is gender dysphoria? What is the difference between gender dysphoria and transgender identity? Okay, so... Um... Thank you, Dave, for having me up here. And um, the first part of this stuff, we're gonna go through a lot of information. So some, some of you, I understand, won't have some of the foundation. Some of you only see things or have only heard things from kind of the political lens or the cultural war that we're kind of going in now. So it's important to get our terms right. It's important to get some information. And then we'll talk about our responses of the church and parents, et cetera. So let's define our terms. So gender identity is simply how people experience themselves as male or female, including how masculine or feminine they feel. 
Gender dysphoria refers to deep and abiding discomfort or distress over the incongruence between one's biological sex and one's psychological and emotional experience of gender. Now, transgender is a broader umbrella term um, for many experiences of gender identity that do not align normatively with a person's biological sex. So we see this in terms like being gender fluid or agender or non-binary. There's a, a, a whole list of terms that kind of fall into this transgender umbrella. Underneath that, you would have gender dysphoria, which would be the distress that, that comes from um, the incongruence between one's biological sex and their psychological or emotional experience of gender. So this, this big idea of some people um, throughout history have um, found what's going on in their minds and sense of identity different than their biological sex in different levels. And, and I just want to, you know, the Bible doesn't, these, these are not issues that are like clearly, uh, this was not on the news every day in the time of the Bible. When it, when, it, when it was written. And, and so these are, are not issues that, that Christians for most of human history have, have had to think about as much as, as, as we're thinking about. But I do wanna just share with you a verse that I think um, a little passage, uh, we looked at this passage a couple times in this series. If you have your Bibles, go over to Matthew 19 and verse one. And, uh, and it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left and then some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. So what we see here is Jesus is affirming that at creation, that God created two genders, male and female. We see this in the created order. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus here gives his vision of, of, of sex and sexuality and marriage in, in just a very short statement, rooted in creation. And then the, the religious leaders now misquote the Old Testament. They said, why then? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, saying, Moses didn't command that. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now we see the disciples say, saying stuff. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. They're saying, well, if I have to get married and stay married, that sounds terrible. And, uh, and then Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are th those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Here's what I like about, about this passage. At the beginning, Jesus affirms God's intent in creation, male and female, become husband and wife, sex only in that relationship. It's a lifelong covenant. And, and then, but here at, at the end, he, he affirms the fact that, that we, we live in a world that's been affected by sin, and, and that there's, we're all find ourselves fallen and, and, and the fall affects all of the world, all of society, affects our minds, affects our bodies, all these different ways. And so here, here's what he says. He says there are eunuchs who were born that way and then eunuchs 
who were made that way. Now, it was not uncommon in this culture. If, if your country went and conquered another country, you enslaved some young men. Some of those young men's jobs were to work in the, in the royal households and households of, of influential people. And in order to eliminate this new young um, man who's living in the house from being a sexual threat to the, to the wives uh, uh, of these people, it was not uncommon for them to be made eunuchs. Some are made that way. And then he says, and some choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Here, what Jesus is doing is he's fully affirming the nobility of singleness. Some of you have chosen or, or, or your situation ha has led you to, to live a life of singleness. And Jesus is saying that, that, that this can be indeed be a beautiful thing. Some choose to live, when he says as a eunuch, he's saying as a single person who doesn't marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It says it's a beautiful thing. But what is Jesus saying when he says some were born that way? Well, what many scholars believe is that Jesus is making a reference that, that because we live in this fallen world where our minds are affected, our bodies are affected, that, that there are, he may be indeed speaking of someone who was born with some sort of genital deformity or, or maybe speaking of someone who was born in what we would say intersex. But when Jesus says some were born that way, he's obviously talking uh, about something, someone who is not living out that norm of, 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 this, of the created order of male and female becoming husband and wife, married forever. This kind of some were born that way. Now exactly what is Jesus saying there? It's not 100% clear, but Jesus, we see this picture of the created order, but then also the effect of the fall. So for that reason, it's, it's fully conceivable to me. And, and I fully believe that, that because of the fall, that there are indeed people um, who what's going on in their minds is, is different than what's going on with, it, with, with their biology. And, and so, Dusty, uh, you've worked a lot with people that struggle with this. You were a prison psychologist for a while. Um, can you help us just understand a little bit of, of how difficult this must be? Yeah, so a little bit of my background. So uh, Dr. Mark Yarhouse is probably the, the leading psychologist, Christian psychologist in the nation has been studying uh, not only sexual identity, but gender identity. Um, and it's um, effects on uh, persons that would call themselves Christians and have a Christian identity, but also struggle with these issues. He's been studying this for well over two decades. Um, I was a part of his research team when I was in graduate school, and he was my dissertation chair with the work that I did with my dissertation. So I had um, quite a bit of understanding of this from kind of an academic point of view and some clinically. And my first job coming out, I, I worked at a male prison um, in the state of California, and there's a high concentration of transgendered individuals um, that live in the prison for a lot of different reasons that we won't go into today. But um, one of the things I want to try and unpack, because I think sometimes this issue's become so polarized that we only see this through the culture war lens or the politicization lens, and I want you to understand for someone that is struggling with gender dysphoria or gender distress, how difficult this can be. There was one client that I had that grew up in um, a very tough part of uh, urban California, joined a gang at a young age, uh, became a very violent criminal, um, was currently serving life in prison without possibility of parole uh, when, I, when I met this person. Once he came to, to, to prison, he began to, uh, to um, become a transgendered woman. That he had always felt this gender dysphoria through his youth and because of the culture that he was raised in, um, he didn't feel comfortable or he could not come out until he got to prison. By the time I worked with this individual, she had been taking uh, hormones for several 
years and we worked through a lot of different things in regards to depression and anxiety and this gender dysphoria that she felt. The distress was so difficult for this person that, that she attempted to castrate herself at one point because she wanted, she did not want the male genitalia. So I'm not saying that for shock value. And I'm not saying that to say that every person that experiences gender dysphoria has that level of distress or discomfort, but it is a very real issue, and it's, a, it's an issue that we should look at with compassion on the human level, as well as uh, from the Christian perspective. So historically, this, is, this has been a thing. We've seen it in, in ancient times. You see a, uh, a very, and really up until about 15, 20 years ago, a, a, uh, you see this, but in a very, very, very small uh, numbers but in the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen a significant increase. Unpack that with us a little bit. Yeah, so historically, and even the last um, DSM, which is our diagnostic manual, even in, in the last iteration of that, which was 10 to 15 years ago, um, uh, we see these numbers as small as one in 10,000 males to one in 13,000 males, and roughly one in 20,000 to one in 30,000 females deal with what we would call gender dysphoria. Now, and we're gonna unpack some of the reasons why this has changed recently, but we've seen a dramatic rise recently, and when I say recent, I mean within kind of the last decade to 15 years, um, where a recent study, it would be five, six years ago, would have estimated about one in 215 to one in 300 adults were dealing with gender dysphoria. More recent updates estimated that 0.6% of the adult population, or one in 166 persons, were dealing with gender dysphoria. It's difficult to get an exact number on this because the increase in this has been so dramatic and so exponential over the last few years. And the information I'm taking this from is from data from uh, 2020 when this book was released. Um, this so also- we've gone from roughly one in 15,000. It's the first time he's interrupted me today. And the interruptions keep this fresh, it's gonna happen. And so uh, the- uh, so we've gone from roughly one in 15,000 to now one in 160-ish. Yes. In just the last 10 or 15 years, a rapid increase. Yes, and even more so, it seems to be disproportionately affecting adolescents at the current moment. The current data, and again, this is difficult to fully get the data, partially because we don't live in a centralized healthcare, which we're not gonna tackle that political topic today, but- Next week we'll um, talk about universal healthcare. Let's so, but- the current data seems to suggest that about one in 50 adolescent girls are experiencing gender dysphoria or some disruption in their gender identity at the current one moment. One in 50, you said? Yes. So two out of 100. Yes, potentially about 3% of all adolescents are experiencing something in regards to um, uh, trans uh, experiences right now. Whether that's gender fluid or, yeah. Correct. And so what are some common reasons, uh, theories, as to why we're seeing this rapid increase? Yeah, so I'll take about 30 seconds to kind of unpack uh, the, the history of this. So if, if you go back to the early 20th century, these issues were typically looked at through the lens of punitive, uh, the punitive legal paradigm. So even things as, as uh, that we would see today is, is kind of no big deal, or we see it out in society, something like cross-dressing um, was punitive from the legal standpoint. The medical and the psychiatric community kind of stepped in in the early 20th century and began to study this from a medical and from a psychiatric um, uh, a paradigm and begin to start to study these individuals that were having these experiences. The, you then see this shift in the language uh, with the medical and the psychiatric studies that were happening 
to where this, this um, now became present in things like the DSM, earlier versions of it, called it the gender identity disorder. So it was seen through kind of this disordered lens. And, um, and then about 20 years ago, late 90s, early 2000s, you saw a massive shift where the trans community began to move from one of a disorder or medical or psychiatric paradigm to now one of a political identity. So trans rights, um, it became much more into kind of the zeitgeist of the culture. So if we're looking at this, um, there's kind of two views or two camps, and right now they're very polarized. The first camp would be kind of the essentialist view or the postmodern view that the essentialist means that the claim that these experiences are real and categorical, present across cultures and throughout history. Now, we've already discussed the idea that this has been present in our culture across time and across history. However, not at the rates that we're seeing today. The essentialist view would say that this increase is due to uh, there's less oppression from the patriarchy or less oppression from uh, conservatives or less oppression. You're from not gonna go to jail, you're not gonna get beat up. So right. people who in the past would have hidden it now just come out and Correct. own it publicly. Correct. That's one theory. That's one theory. What's the downside to that theory? So the downside to that theory is it, it feels vague and naive because something is, we've had seen such a massive shift in the last 10 years. We, we need to have some better explanatory language with that. It, it's also, it's partially true for individuals that struggled with this issue in their younger life that are now in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Many of them uh, would have described themselves as feeling psychotic during their adolescent years or early adult years because they didn't, there was no language around this. Some of them would have been grateful to grow up in a time like this to at least understand why they're having this level of distress. Um, but we're also, we're not seeing large amounts of women or men in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s that are uh, now transitioning because now the culture has accepted it. We're seeing this disproportionately in younger people. So the, the second view that also fails to kind of explain this fully would be something called the social contagion or the psychological contagion. This theory was kind of developed out of a response to the essentialist view. Uh, this uh, was really spurred by the Lisa Lippman study, which that study had some methodological issues, but, but the issue, the, what she came out with out of that study and then Abigail Schreier wrote in her book, Irreversible Damage, kind of parodying this view, is that a social contagion is something that does exist. Um, we tend to see this uh, predominantly in adolescents, predominantly in adolescent females, where you see pockets of cutting behavior or eating disorders, um, self-harm, uh, suicide, suicide attempts, suicide completions. You tend to see this psychological contagion or social contagion that almost acts like a virus that kind of takes over. So the problem with this view is it feels incomplete and it's looking at things from the macro level. But when you come down to it on the individual level, which is where you and I might interact with someone that's part of the trans community, it feels antagonistic. And so it's all in your head or kind of a yes it, yeah. it, it feels as just saying well you're just Im impacted with a virus and you you're not really that way and so that feels, feels like it dismissive feels very dismissive um and so there's there's something else that dr mark yarhouse kind of unpacks in his book that i that i appreciate something called a looping effect and this is a, the a theory of a, a philosophical theory that was just um, established a long time ago you can put that slide up there so you can start with kind of a classification um, of a kind now if you have a natural phenomenon like a rock or a natural chemical compound um, and you change the classification on that or you begin to create different language the chemical compound or the rock doesn't respond to that the different language you're now using in classification. 
With a human phenomenon, that, that does become different. That if we begin to classify things differently, look at things differently, we're, because we know that diagnostic structures and diagnostic information changes over time as we kind of we morph and we grow, you take that classification and you begin changing it. That then begins to inform people on how to think about these very important issues. And so people now begin to create language and they now begin to create identity uh, from this information that's coming out, which gives rise to something that we would see institutions. So you see specialty clinics, uh, conferences, um, training, advocacy groups, advocacy groups, training for professionals, uh, which leads to school curriculum. Yes, which leads to information that now comes out into the public, and this slowly begins to disseminate out into the public. Out of that creates experts that now are experts in the field that tell you how and what to think about this issue, and which knowledge is good knowledge, bad knowledge. Now you apply this, and you can go to the next screen to what we currently see, and, and you could see that as the classifications began to change with this, it began to inform people, and people began to respond to these classification changes, which gave rise to specialty clinics and gender clinics, um, which gave rise to the knowledge and the information as they studied this, um, and also gave rise to experts coming out into the field. This is what you should believe. This is what you uh, should not believe. Here are the treatments. Here are the method methods. And so you see this looping effect, and that and as this thing has slowly morphed over the last 10 Looping years. Effect sounds kind of like institutional brainwashing. A, a little bit. Is that, yes. is that too simple? Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably, I think that's probably a, a good way of saying it, but that... Common man talk, not okay. psychologist talk? Yes. So, um, <laughs> you're at my flow. I'm not, um, I'm not a very smart man. You just... Um, but, but I... All right, go ahead. Let's, um, let's give Pastor Dave a round of applause. He went five minutes without interrupting me. That was really good. Okay. So, so I you, won't go that long again. Okay. <laughs> so, so you see this now even playing out kind of at, all the way down into elementary schools or preschools where you, you see creations of knowledge like the genderbred person or the gender unicorn. Um, 25 years ago, an eight-year-old wouldn't have come home and said, I am a rainbow kid or I am a non-binary person. That language didn't exist. And so this feels like a, a way to be able to explain why these things are now kind of coming out into our society. Do you think it's fair? Uh, it seems to me that there's, there's elements of truth from each of these, um, but probably not one of them is sufficient in and of themselves to Correct. fully explain. But there's some, some, of, some of each of these have measures of truth. Is that fair? Correct. Yep. Um, what are some of the treatment options? Unpack some of that with us. Yeah, so... We're going to kind of go back historically. So previously, before all of this has happened in the last 15 to 20 years, most professionals agreed on taking a wait-and-see approach. Because it disproportionately impact, um, affected males, biological males versus biological females, um, you would work with therapists, work with a doctor. We're going to keep an eye on it, accept the person where they're at. And typically, these issues resolve themselves by the time the child entered into puberty or early adulthood. 70 to 80% of the time, the gender dysphoria began to resolve itself. Um, and that may look like, you know, for a male, maybe experiencing um, or displaying more effeminate features as an adolescent or, or a male, 
potentially a same-sex sexual attraction developed once puberty would happen. So you kind of see that this approach of kind of the wait and see approach. Now, this has changed dramatically because we've had the shift from it being a medical or psychiatric experience that we're putting language around to now more of a political identity or now public identity um, that you've seen the, the medical and psychological communities struggle to keep up with some of the rapid changes. So as of now, the Medical Association and the APA, the American Psychological Association, only look at affirmative therapies uh, for these gender issues or gender dysphoria towards a more, you know, a transgender female or a transgender male. So, so pushing people through those things. Now, what some of those treatments look like uh, would be hormone treatments or more invasive medical procedures. Um, even in this current culture, less than 50% of those dealing with any type of gender identity issues uh, will, will take a hormone treatment. Um, less than 25% uh, have any type of medical or surgical things done, like a double mastectomy, um, should be top surgery or something like bottom surgery. We're not going to go into all the details with all of that stuff. Aren't you doing a seminar later all about the details of that? <laughs> okay. Um, what time is I mean, it? Why? Like seriously, why? <laughs> I told you not to have that extra. Because coffee. it gets boring if I don't kind of chime in a little bit. Okay. So the other the other thing, I'm trying to give information here. The other thing <laughs> that has also come out, um, and, and this is it's it's very relatively new. It's been out about a decade or so. Is something called puberty blockers, where you would give the child the, right before they enter into puberty something that blocks the puberty that holds the body in kind of a holding pattern. Now, there's risks associated with all of these types of things. I'm only going to highlight a couple of these because. Some of this isn't talked about in kind of the, the broader culture currently that, you know, for a biological female that wants to transition to a trans male that begins a course of testosterone treatment, you start a, a biological clock that, that begins to tick because of the changes that happen to the body, whether that's atrophy to the uterus, vaginal atrophy, um, the, within five years, the risk of endometrial cancer goes up so significantly that, that uh, doctors now recommend getting a full hysterectomy. A lot of these changes are irreversible, both, both for biological men, both biological women. Um, we don't know the risks associated with the puberty blockers and what that does if someone's on them for five years, 10 years. It's just too new to understand what's going on. So that's, that's kind of a basic overview. And then many times the, the folks that, that pursue those more aggressive and radical treatments still experience significant measures of depression and anxiety. Um, yes, and after. yes, thank you. So, yeah, so gender dysphoria is always marked with things like depression, anxiety, uh, sometimes suicide attempts, self-harm behaviors, addictions. Um, what we've seen in the literature for a lot of the persons that end up going through hormone treatments or medical procedures is that we tend to see similar levels of depression or anxiety or self-harm behavior um, pre and post uh, surgical intervention or hormonal intervention. Um, not always. There are plenty of trans people in the world that, are, that the distress has lifted because of some of the changes, but, but yes, we do see that. Uh, what, are, so there's, what are some basic perspectives that people in general and Christians in particular, that ways that we can, can, can view these issues? 
Yes, there's kind of three basic lenses that Dr. Mark Yarhouse lays out in his book, um, his first book on gender dysphoria, which was in 2015. So the three lenses would be this. There's the integrity lens, which would tend to place a, a higher emphasis on Genesis 1 and 2, that God created male and female, he created them both. Um, there's a, a morality that's placed on top of that, so there's a right way or a wrong way to look at things. It places that high emphasis on the integrity of what God's original intent was. There'd be the disability lens, which would be a more of an emphasis on Genesis 3. Uh, so we would tend to look at this issue through compassion, that we live in a fallen world, that some people have gender identity uh, experiences that are messy and difficult to manage, and that we need to look at that through the lens of compassion. And then finally, the third lens um, would be the diversity lens, which would kind of be the zeitgeist of the culture right now, that this is a new people group that needs to be celebrated and affirmed and pushed out into society. Their rights need to be navigated. Uh, there's a very strong sense within the LGBTQ plus community that trans people are welcome in any experience, in any language, in any identity. Um, that's kind of the diversity lens. lens. Now, now, looking at this through, through the, the church, Dr. Yarhouse likes to take something that he calls an integrated flexible approach, which is essentially looking at all three of these and saying, what can we pull from each of these lenses? One, the integrity lens, God created male and female. God's creation is good. He created each and every person. Through the disability lens, we live in a fallen world that there are people that, that will struggle with things that will have messy parts of their life, including gender identity. And when you get to the diversity lens, and this is where it's important for the church to understand that we may not agree with a lot of the language used from the diversity lens, but one thing they get right is they provide a sense of community and belonging and compassion and room for the messy. And my, my worry is this for the body of Christ in general, the large body, Life Church, is that we are in danger of treating this the same way that we tre treated homosexuality in the 80s and the 90s, where we somehow got it into our minds that somebody could not have a same-sex sexual attraction and also have a love for Jesus and, and trying to live out that Christian life. And, and some of this we see here in, in, in for the overall church that we must be a church that loves people and that walks with people with compassion and with love, and that these people are looking for that sense of belonging and that sense of community, which their LGBTQ plus community gives them. How as the church can we walk with people with their spiritual identity and trust that God is a big God that has a plan for every single person's life, no matter what they're dealing with? And that we've all, we've all got our struggles, we've all got our brokenness. Correct. Um, what would you tell someone um, who has a child that's struggling with, with these issues? Yeah, so it's a, we could spend two hours talking about this. So um, I, I'm gonna point out that on, on the app, um, on the webpage, um, for the, those of you online, I listed a, a series of, of resources that include several books by Dr. Yarhouse. Um, there is also a wonderful book um, that's how and when to talk to your kids about sex. It's an older book, but the third edition just came out a couple of years ago, includes a whole chapter on how to talk about gender issues with your kids at, at um, age appropriate times. So here, here would be kind of the, the three things that I would say is one, don't, don't parent out of fear. You don't have to lock your kid in the closet and keep them away from culture and, and push them to this, this place where we have to be afraid of these issues. These issues are here in culture and we have to have a way to talk about these things. 
Number, number two, I would say that it's a measured response. Talk with your child. Understand your child. Don't respond to your child in the same way that you might hold some political view. That it's your child and your child is reaching out saying, do you still love me? Through this process, adult children that have dealt with this issue when talking about their childhoods um, all say a couple of things, that they wish their parents had been more present and been more understanding. And the third thing I would say is is a, a word of caution of slow the process down. The current culture, the current specialty clinics, the, the current gender experts are pushing for immediate responses. Slow that process down. Your 14-year-old does not have to start testosterone today. We, we don't want to start that clock. You don't know what's going to happen. There's a number, and it's not a small number, of persons that are in their late teens, early 20s that are now attempting to detransition because they, they realized this was wrong all, all along, that we need, I, I wasn't actually this, but I actually am what my biologically was, that we have to slow this process down and have in-depth conversations with our kids and educate yourself. There are a lot of resources that you can do. I, Mark, Dr. Mark Yarhouse runs the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. That's across the nation. There are lots of wonderful therapists that deal with this issue in a compassionate and a kind way because this is such a difficult thing to navigate for some people. What would you tell someone um, here who's uh, struggling with, with, with these issues of, of gender dysphoria yeah. and uh, who's, who really is seeking to live their life as, as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, so there's th- three things in the brief time that we have left is that Jesus sees you and he does not leave you as you navigate these difficulties. He sees you, he walks with you. And the process of dealing with some of these issues can be a lifelong journey, not for everybody. For some people, they're able to get to a place where this becomes integrated into their life. But Jesus will always be with you. Keep pressing into him. And the final thing is that we, the church, we are here to walk with you. We want to walk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to, to, to walk through the, and navigate these difficult things. And it, it's also, it's not lost on me that there may be some people here that are watching that haven't decided to give their life to, to Jesus or are struggling with this issue. And I'm gonna end with, with this quote right here from Dr. Yarhouse. It says this, if you, have tra- not, if you have not transitioned and carry unique challenges in wrestling with gender identity on a daily basis, your story is important. If you have transitioned and found it wanting, your story is also important. If you have transitioned and continue to bear the weight of ongoing hormonal treatments, disgusted looks from Christians at the grocery store, and pointed fingers, remember that God is not disgusted by you. God is not scandalized by your existence. It is good that you are alive. Please thank uh, Dr. Brown. Thank you, buddy. going to take 10 minutes and land the plane on this series for us. Um, so uh, as we wrap up this series, I just want to share just a few things. Uh, one of our great values at Life Church is balance. We talk about how at Life Church we want to be a balanced, healthy, Christ-centered church. And we live in a time where balance is very rare and where the loudest voices tend to come from the fringes on both sides and from the extremes from both sides. And, and we really want to be a balanced healthy, Christ-centered church. And so a few things that that, that means for us is that at Life Church we, we do uh, uh, hold to a historic Christian sexual ethic. That, that, that we believe that, that God's intent and design 
is that uh, sexual activity only happen inside the marriage of a man and a woman. That that is God's design, and anything outside of that in terms of fantasy or action finds itself to be outside of God's design and is sin. So we hold to a historic Christian sexual ethic and, and, and want to be known for that. But as much as we want to be known for that, we want to be known for other things as well. Uh, we, we want to be known as a humble people, people that are very aware that, that all of us find ourselves sinful and broken and desperately in need of God's grace, and that even when it comes to these issues of sexuality, that all of us find ourselves sinful and broken and in need of God's grace, and so we want to be marked by humility. We also want to be marked by, by a radical compassion and love for people, that, that people that, uh, that recognize that, that we all have different areas of, of sin and brokenness, and that, get this, if you get nothing else, get this, the response of Jesus to sin and brokenness was always to draw close. We see that in the, in the macro, in the incarnation, that that, that, that that Son of God would leave heaven, come to earth, born in a stinky shed, uh, born that, that he might ultimately die on the cross, that, and that, but that throughout his whole life, what we see is that Jesus always got close to the outcast, to the sinner, and, and to the broken. Whether that was the, the leper or the prostitute or the tax collector, Jesus got close to broken people. Jesus got close to the outcast. And, and so the response of Jesus was always love and compassion. And if the church can again be known as people that draw close to the outcast, draw close to, to, to those that are thought of as the worst sinners and, and, and those that are most aware of their own brokenness, if, if we can be those people that, that draw close with love and compassion, does that mean that, that we agree with everything someone else says? Not, no, not necessarily. Does that mean that it's not sinful to, to, for, for homosexual activity? Does that mean that we're saying it's not a sin? That's not what we're saying. Jesus never winked at sin. Jesus died for sin. But he came close. He drew close with love and compassion. And if the church of Jesus can be known for as people that draw close with love and compassion, it'll change history. If you ask young people today, do their surveys have been done, what's the first thing you think of when you think of Christians? The first thing they say is they hate gay people. And that's not okay. That should not be the thing we should be known for. Jesus always drew close with love and compassion. And then finally, we want to be a hopeful people. I don't know about you, but it's easy if you just turn on the news today, whether it's the culture wars and just how rapidly culture's changing can make us anxious. It just seems like you turn on the news and it's easy to get anxious and scared. And for a while, it was, it was all COVID. And then it seems like while, while COVID seems to be backing off, now suddenly we're like, are we gonna go to war with Russia? Are we gonna, you know, and it's like, gosh, if you're 40 years old, you remember like in the 90s thinking, oh, we don't have to worry about that now. But it's like, and, and there's this fear and anxiety everywhere. But the people of Jesus should never be marked by fear and anxiety. Because what happens is fear and anxiety end up getting manifested in anger, usually. And we just look like angry, angry people. But let me, let me show you, in Romans chapter eight, let me show this to you real fast. In Romans seven, the apostle Paul, if, if, if the book of Romans ended at Romans seven, it'd be a real, it, it would have a whole different uh, um, message because at the end of Romans seven, the apostle Paul is, is talking about the struggle with sin. He says, hey, the good thing I wanna do, I struggle to do, 
the thing I know I shouldn't do, I find myself keep doing. And it's just kind of this, this struggle with sin is pictured. But then we see in Romans 8, verse 1, we see this whole different triumphant message that I believe gives us hope, even in, in the midst of, of, of crazy times and even in the midst of dealing with difficulty in our own life. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, so it's right after the whole talk about the struggle with sin. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we have hope because, because in Jesus, there's no sin that's too big for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we see skipping down in, in, in verse 22. He says, we, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What's he saying? Those things in life, whether it's in the culture or in politics or in our minds or in our bodies or in our relationships, those things in our life that, that, we, that, that remind us that this world is not as it should be, whether it's a temptation we wish we didn't have, whether it's a physical ailment or a relationship that goes bad or all of these things, all of these things in life that remind us that the world is not as it should be, he compares to the pains of childbirth. Each of these things are this longing for when Jesus will come back and make everything wrong in this world right. Let me show this to you. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Get this, the redemption of our bodies. I want you to know, some of you have got incredible struggles every day that, that you wrestle with. So some of you, may, it may your whole life have felt like what's going on in your mind doesn't match what's going on with your body, and it's been an incredibly painful experience. And I want you to know that, that one day, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make everything right. This redemption of our bodies, we have this hope that one day Jesus will make everything right. And then we have hope in this, that his love is bigger than anything we'll face. I'm gonna show you verse 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, get this, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we, we hold to a historic Christian sexual ethic. We do so humbly, recognizing that we all find ourselves in need of God's grace. We do so marked by love and compassion. Jesus always drew close. And we do so with this hope. This hope that, that we know that because of what Jesus has done, that there's no sin too great. We do this with this hope because one day Jesus is gonna fix everything wrong with this messy, messy world and, and, and make everything right. And we do this because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let me pray for you. So Father, we just confess that these things are too big for us to fully grasp. They're bigger than us, but God, we rejoice that they are not bigger than you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who passionately pursue holiness, 
God, that we would walk humbly with this aware that, that we find ourselves desperate for your grace. Lord, that we would have the love and compassion for those that feel like they're on the outside looking in, that, that those that the society would call outcasts, those that, that are more aware of their brokenness than others, God, that, that we would draw close with love and compassion like Jesus, the compassion that led him to the cross. And God, that you'd fill us in hope with hope. God, that we wouldn't be marked by fear or anxiety or anger, but that we'd be marked with hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.